0: welcome to the evergreen review podcast your host is dale peck writer professor and the editor-in-chief of the evergreen review
1: hello I'm here with John Oakes, Evergreen's publisher. I'm Dale Peck. I'm Evergreen's editor-in-chief. We're very fortunate to have John with us today. He's one of the few people still alive back from the early days oh. when Evergreen was first being published. John, you know, for people who don't know about Evergreen, can you, like, <laughs> like tell them why this, this magazine was worth reviving uh, 60, 70 years after it was first launched?
0: I think, Dale, uh, there are two things that make Evergreen exciting. One is its consistent... Uh, commitment to the left, to progressive politics, to the alternative, um, a- also in culture, and um, two is its really incredible history. Uh, the people who were published in Evergreen uh, blended some of its um, flavor. And
1: care to name a few?
0: Ah, I think I could, Dale. <laughs> um, Samuel Beckett, Jean Genet. Allen Ginsberg, Susan Sontag, Marguerite Duras, Eugene Ionesco. It was started as a sort of a, a, a magazine in large part to promote the writers of, of uh, what was then a beginning Grove Press. And it uh, gathered steam and really became its own, uh, very separate publication, in many ways edgier and more political. And, and harder driving than a lot of Grove. Though, I mean, as we all know, uh, Grove uh, was, was you know, absolutely um, one of the great forces that shaped the 60s and 70s. I,
1: I heard a rumor that your first job out of college <laughs> was, was possibly working for, was it working for Grove or was it working directly for Barney Ross, a Groves founder? Uh,
0: uh, actually, it was my uh, second job. I started as a reporter for the Associated Press, and I, uh, but then I came, uh, in New Orleans, and then I came back to New York uh, to work for Barney Rossett who had uh, really shaped uh, Grove.
1: For those of you who aren't familiar with Barney Rossett, he's probably, you know, will go down in history as, as the man who made it legal to publish the word fuck um, uh, in a printed book, but he did a few other things.
0: Apart from Evergreen, um, what motivated him was anti-authoritarianism and that translated into, or it meshed nicely into his interests in what he called erotica uh, and what I think the rest of us would call porn and he in fact would get very angry if somebody called some of what he was publishing uh, pornography Um, but he really liked stories and images about sex in all its forms and shapes and and sizes and um, uh, physicians. Physicians, too, Dale. <laughs> <laughs> and with implements or without implements. Well. And that led him to publish things like. Uh, In the pages of Evergreen Barbarella, which was made into the classic film starring Jane Fonda, of course. Classic? Is classic the word people are using (laughs) to describe Barbarella? It led Mm -hmm. him to publish lost Victorian classics such as Ravished on a Railway. (laughs) (laughs) It's an actual.
1: I want to say you're making that up, but I'm (laughs) assuming you're not actually making that up. It's an actual. Ravished on a Railway. Ravished on a Railway.
0: But also the story of O um, and Phoebe Zeitgeist. Uh, and much else and
1: uh, You know the band Duran takes their name from the villain in Barbarella
0: I, I, I did not know that I
1: thought you also grew up in the <laughs> 1980s
0: I grew up in the 1960s but don't tell anyone <laughs> um, so his, his it, it, this anti-authoritarianism uh, and, and that led him into direct conflict with the federal government and with every state in the union where he was uh, taken to court endlessly by Postmasters General.
1: I mean, it should be said that I, I think that his goal was to be sued, right? He, he wanted them to sue them because he wanted to set precedent um, so that, you know, he could break the censorship laws.
0: I don't know. I think his goal was to be let alone to publish whatever the hell he wanted to publish. And if somebody wanted to, to step up and fight him, he was ready to fight. And and consequently, he blew through a, a what I understand was a, a sizable fortune at the time, and ended up um, with uh, struggling to pay the rent uh, at the end of his days. But he he really uh, I think it's it's not an exaggeration to say this guy reshaped American culture.
1: Uh, the Beats. Um, uh, essentially, he he brought the Beats national in the second Kerouac. issue of, 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 of Evergreen. Carowac and Henry the the, Kerouac, the Miller who was <laughs> Miller was being
0: published. Not to diss any other publishers, but uh, Miller was being published by J D Laughlin Walklin at uh, New Directions. But uh, who found uh, the Tropics too raunchy to publish? And Barney said, absolutely. You know, he was, so he published Tropic of Cancer, Capricorn. and
1: Which was one of the big lawsuits, as I recall. Yes, I did read cancer. You published his memoir, and I did dutifully read it, you know, to to learn about my forebear. Um, uh, Also published Lady Lady Chatterley's Lover, I believe. And did he publish Lolita or no?
0: No, that was one he missed out on, yeah. and but he didn't have regrets because he, at least he told me, he thought, which I totally agree, from what I know of him, uh, that Nabokov was a total snob. And, you know, he was, uh, and, and when you I read I thought it, you were going to say pedophile. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Not too, but I don't think that would have given Barney pause. But I think what uh, Barney was offended by, uh, and it, it certainly comes through in the book of his writing, you know, his, his snobbishness. He published Malcolm X, he published uh, uh, France Fanon, and he published the Motorcycle Diaries of Jake Guevara. In fact, there was a whole saga where they went down to try and, you know, mm-hmm. find the... So he, he really was an extraordinary figure. I heard he was a big fan of fights too. I don't know about uh-huh. that.
1: I'm just wondering if he ever hit you. I, he would never. Like I think, a badge of honor, right? To say,
0: I mean, Barney Rossa, Norman Mailer. He always treated me very nicely. He would occasionally yell, <clears throat> which I suppose isn't so nice. But overall, um, he was. Uh, uh, he, he uh, I think, he reserved some of his harshest um, in person ac- encounters for uh, women, which was a you know real uh, big problem. Uh, from our perspective.
1: uh. With with that kind of legacy um, uh, behind Evergreen, were you daunted when you first, you know, uh, no. ob- a- a- obtained the the, no. the possibility of bringing it back? Well, how, how, do, how do you know, from from your standpoint as publisher, sure. how do you think about living up to sure. um, its re- its reputation, yeah. its legacy?
0: A reasonable question, Dale. But uh, right from the outset, when the board, when they asked me if I would be interested, I of course I was interested, and then I thought, you know, who am I to to do this? As, you, and then my next thought was. You know, actually, I I know something about what it was. I certainly am in line. I think with the general political outlook of of, of looking for the alternative. Um, and there's a lot that I uh, wouldn't share with that earlier period. That I think uh, accusations of misogyny are real and 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 really uh, bad. <laughs> um, um, but apart from that, uh, I don't see myself as even aspiring to, you know, we, we can't recreate what he did, and and um, in fact, much of what Barney did, and this is where an outstanding editor comes into play, namely yourself. Uh, I think one of his great talents was, well, he sometimes, he, he did bring in uh, uh, writers, but Um, His great talent was in letting editors, not infallible, but pretty great ones like Richard Seaver, Fred Jordan, um, Kent Carroll, others, uh, really let them uh, go their way, and um, he didn't try to rein people in. I think one consequence of that was, was that Grove was really not a commercial enterprise, and very rarely, if you look at the financials, it, it hardly ever made money over, you know, fifty years. Um, but uh, I also deeply respect his commitment to people that he placed faith in, and that is a great thing. I think loyalty. So
1: you're basically is, saying it's all on me. <laughs> yes,
0: if it's if ever no, if Evergreen's bad, it's your fault. But if people start saying how great it is, you know. I'm the publisher.
1: (laughs) Seems like a totally fair (laughs) trade-off. (laughs) <laughs> so you're not looking for the new Samuel Beckett or Kumishima or
0: Dale. You see me um, in in the evergreen well, o- in office every day with my heels up on the evergreen desk. evergreen has an office and a glass of Chablis <laughs> in my hand, one hand and cigar in the other. You know that I'm not looking for anything except you know. So you think a, that a you're quiet paint, You think you're
1: painting an you know an ironic image, but then you use a wine
0: like Chablis. So I want to ask you, Dale. Uh, uh, do you have other questions about Barney? I mean, he really is an Amazing figure who I think um, uh, he really ranks up there with, in his weird, uh, even perverse, but manic way, he ranks up there with Aldous Minutius and um, other really uh, great publishers. Of, what of what name did you say?
1: Aldous Nucius?
0: Minutius. Minutius? You know, the Minucius. Venetian publisher of the 1600s. The guy who introduced italics and I believe also gave us the comma, though I'm not sure of that yet. Okay,
1: he's now just become my favorite person in the whole world and I'm gonna yeah, yeah. obviously leave this interview and spend a lot of time on Wikipedia. So,
0: um. uh, well, a, a word about him. So he's one of the first publishers to have his work plagiarized. They not only uh, copied the stuff that he published but also his colophon because he was so highly respected as a printer, and at at that time, publishers were also, more often than not, printers, that his, um, you know, so the poor guy was was going nuts from copyright violations, and then he would, uh, the word is that he would put a sign on his door saying, if you're not here to buy something, don't bother me, because I'm working, obviously, this would be in, you know, Latin or Italian or whatever they were doing at the time, but I, I like that guy. Sydney's the equal. Strauss has been lionized to He's the equal to Strauss? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That 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 collaborator with the CIA. <laughs> yeah. Roger Strauss yeah. was a collaborator? <laughs> <laughs> Look, Farster Sharu is one of the country's great publishers. Published uh, my the, first three books. Oh, right. Well, yeah. you know, let's if, burn bridges while we're on I left them. But, then, him. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I mean in the, pages, in the pages in the pages of the New Yorker no less when he was being profiled, I think, by Ian McEwan, he thought it was it just it just was so typical of him. He thought it was just hilarious that the CIA had approached him to, so this is not my leftist fantasy. this is straight from the mouth of Strauss, that um, they said, "If you let us pick the people who will be your so-called literary scouts in Europe, we will pay their salaries." and they will in fact report to you on what's happening in European publishing and Strauss thought this was just a great deal and he said (laughs) oh sure why not you know Strauss did some great publishing but you know Barney really reshaped our thinking.
1: It might amuse you to know that when Susan Sontag was having what would turn out to be her last book party for In America she invited more than 400 people and Roger Strauss crossed exactly one name off the list this
0: guy. Oh, good but for you! <laughs> I, was, I wonder why he was Because be I because I thing, left Dale. FSG.
1: <laughs> you weren't supposed to do that. No, you were yeah. supposed. To, you were supposed to be very grateful to them, and I was very grateful to them. But they were also a real pain in the ass. And somebody else offered me more money, so I went. Um, poor Roger. I didn't know he was a CIA
0: collaborator. So I have a question for you, Dale. So here's this, uh, let's you know, Dusty Magazine, which really hasn't had much of a presence. Uh, for really 20, 30 years. The New Yorker? (laughs) Evergreen Review. And what uh, made you want to take up this banner?
1: I mean... I'm just an old-fashioned opportunist. Um, I I believe what happened was you sent out an email saying that you um, were now the publisher of Evergreen Review and you were going to be bringing it back. And I immediately wrote you and said, do you have an editor-in-chief yet? And I think you said something like, no, but we're talking to some people. And I'm like, well, I'm here and I'm free. (laughs) I believe those were the qualifications I offered you. Um, uh, I I guess I had a better sales pitch than that because you took me. But um, honestly... Uh, I, I, it was just something I always wanted to do You know, I mean I, what, I, what was something Was to edit mean? a magazine um, Like it, it sounds like um, And I mean this, you know um, uh, in, in the most respectfully mocking manner um, Or mockingly respect No, respectfully mocking manner It sounds like you always wanted to be a publisher Which is fabulous Like there are not many people who like I want to grow up and be a publisher And, and, and all that you know, But like you know who Minutius is You know who the guy who invented italics is Like that's,
0: that's pretty fabulous um. Actually I didn't I wanted to be a reporter and I fell into book publishing and it seemed more congenial to me because the the pace is much sl- you know, you yeah, know it seems s- like you gave up you reporting after slow, just a couple of how, years how huh? slow I am mm-hmm. I much prefer the slow pace of book publishing to the breakneck pace of of um, being a reporter for the AP which is yeah, know, it's yeah incredible you go from one thing to the other. But
1: I tried reporting for about a year and I could just <coughs> handle writing about real yeah. people. Where'd you report? Because, um, I mostly wrote for the gay press um, <laughs> but like I did a couple of stories sort of in the wake of the Jeffrey Dahmer murders because that mm. just happened when I was young and then also there was a serial killer mm. in England and so you're like interviewing these people and you know their friends um, uh, lovers have have been you know killed and eaten um, uh, killed and mutilated or something like that and you know the police have taken this total laissez-faire attitude about it because it's just gay people and just People of color, and then you know, then your editor is like, "Yeah, you have twenty five hundred words," and like, "Oh, so I have to like somehow do justice by these people." Mm. And, and it was like, I it really made me respect reporters a lot and all that. I think it used to mostly judge reporters on how good their sentences were, but it's actually really about you know, like like how well you can represent people, or just having the guts to realize that when you're interviewing a person for a story, um that you know you have to be a little mercenary, you know. Um, like, ultimately, you have a point to make as, as a reporter, and so you're picking and choosing pieces of that biography, um, and I did not have the stomach for it.
0: That's really interesting. For me, my brief stint at the AP, which was ex- extremely educational, was seeing how the news was shaped and how arbitrary it was, what got covered and what didn't. You know, with the, the person who was running the, the office there deciding if something... You know, merited sending over an AP reporter, or you know, having a restaurant sending us food, you know, just unasked yeah. for, and then suddenly that restaurant would some would get a get, nice review, would yeah. get a covered. I was shocked, and you know, and then late at night, um, I I'm sure it's not still run that way. This was Dale many many years ago, but um, uh, I was on. The graveyard shift, and I could really control because New Orleans was the the hub for the South, and I could control what went out to um, subscriber newspapers all around the South. So of course, you know, I did. Even then, I did a lot about you know anything about the environment Dear or American South or you're or a racist, John race Oakes. relations. Exactly, race yeah. relations. You know, you, you knew his grandfather's mayor of Chattanooga.
1: I did not know that your grandfather was mayor of Chattanooga. Is is, is this the same grandfather who founded the New York Times? No, no, Um, that was his great uncle or whatever he was.
0: He was a uh, he was uh, uh, his brother uh, Adolf Fox uh, bought the Times. Much more important, he had a great mustache. You know, the guy had one of these. And he killed a man movies. in the street. He did uh, not. He shot a guy in the street. The guy, the guy did not die in the
1: street. He died elsewhere.
0: <laughs> he was attacked on the street by a man uh, who beat him with a cane because it was something to do with his journalism. I, this was before he was mayor, and he pulled out a gun and he shot the guy. Um, and I don't carry a gun, Dale. See. Um, but the family story is at least that he then went to visit him in the hospital to show what a gentleman he was. <laughs> and also
1: just say that if you hit me with the can again, I won't miss the second time, right?
0: <laughs> I can't imagine. I think I'd be beaten to death before I choose someone, so maybe the blood has thinned or something. But so Evergreen popped up on your screen, and you jumped at the chance, and a... A lively thinking me thought. Thank God somebody has stepped up to 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 do this this to take on this job, which uh, really to, to make it uh, worthwhile publication is no small thing. And I I think what when it, it's remarkable how in a very short time, with the aid of some of your picked colleagues, um, it's. I, I think it's it's just extraordinary what you what you guys have done.
1: Um, thank you, first of all. Um, but yeah, you know, originally it, it was it was me and Calvin Baker and Zia Joffrey, um, uh, and you know we were doing it entirely on a volunteer basis. And you know they've since sort of had to like pay attention to things that make the money um, uh, a, a little more often, but. You know, I, I had talked to Calvin and Zia both on, on various occasions about doing a magazine for probably, you know, the better part of 15 years or something like mm. that. But with Evergreen, it was just kind of a no-brainer because, you know, one, you know, it, it it's a name that people in the literary establishment knew and really respected. But on top of that, it's just the example itself was so inspiring because, mm. as you say, it, it had such a, you know, a clear-cut um, aesthetic, which I think is still very resonant today, which is one you know towards left-wing politics um, uh, and uh, you know sort of a certain kind of representation of voices not often seen in the pages of more mainstream literary journals. But then also, um, I, I think also a real commitment toward toward a, a radical or at least inventive aesthetics. On top of that, um, uh, and and that was really great because I, I think for me, you know. Um, those two things really go hand in hand. Like, I I am not a big fan of of a story that's written by a person who's a member of an oppressed community um, when that person is incapable of expressing anything other than sort of platitudes um, uh, and a kind of boosterish sort of position, because I don't think it's actually representational. You know, I think you're representing an ideal um, that people can't actually live up to, and I think that that kind of journalism um, or fiction or poetry or what have you does more harm than good because it's, it's like, oh, I should be a cookie cutter. It's like basically like, you know, I should aspire to be Pete Buttigieg, you know, instead of being an individual. People who are actually able to um, uh, express a unique point of view in, in a unique way, sort of represent a genuine diversity, you know. Unique voices um, coupled with a, a, a unique vision. We, to sort of we, we,
0: could, we come back to this point um, sometimes that the your emphasis on what's unique, and my question, you know, is anything really unique, and and is there a way, isn't that sort of a false um, uh, hope that we can find a unique voice? Uh, That's just so depressing, John, (laughs) you know.
1: Um, Well, no, I mean, well, for me, that's, I mean, I, I don't know. People think of me as maybe a, a hater or a pessimist or something, but I'm right. I, I, maybe I'm really an optimist because I think it's not that hard, actually. Um, that I think uh,
0: that 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 is what what working with you I, I've been struck by. So you are often portrayed as this, you know, this this wild guy, wild eyed, um, uh, violent writer, and in fact, what I've seen is. Um, somebody who's actually nurturing and who is keen to work with new writers. And to see some of the hands-on editing that you do with, with some of these writers, um, you really shape their work and you, in a very patient and uh, admirable way.
1: It's just mostly a question of, of like paying attention to what they're trying to say. And if they've made it to that point, you know I'm, I'm interested in what they're trying to say so like it makes the job easier you know it's hmm. it's not like I'm publishing a piece where I really hate this piece and someone's making me edit it you know um, just to make it clear or something like that if it's, if it's gotten to the point where I'm editing the piece it's because I really like what it's trying to say and so it's it's enjoyable to help the writer um, try to get it out there I mean that said I, I, I don't think any piece that we've done has required like enormous amounts of editing one of the nice things about being a relatively small publication you know uh, is that we can reject pieces that are just you know going to take you know too much labor because we don't have the time and the the resources for it and we can you know focus on pieces um, that are a little closer to finished um, uh, when they come in and you know like, like, I'm perfectly happy with rejecting a piece and having someone send me that piece again a year later. You know, if if they want to, if they if they've re- rewritten it or something like that. But,
0: and uh, and yet, recently at least, um, it seems that you've published several pieces that uh, are almost short books. I mean, you have that fantastic series uh, ongoing at this point by um, Jose Garcia Escobar, which listeners, if you haven't taken a look at it, you you just you really owe it to yourself, it's just devastating. Um, And then, of course, uh, Lonely Christopher's, uh, Kevin Killian, and I mean, so you're not adverse to taking on, I mean, altogether, each of these pieces, are, what, they're the, well over The them.
1: Well, the Garcia Escobar piece in total is going to run to almost 30,000 words, which really is a short book. The Lonely Christopher piece is m- closer to 12 or 15, um, which I think um, the, very, the very first piece that we ran, which was um, uh, Jeffrey Renard Allen's manifesto on Black Lives Matter, that ran to about 12,000 words. Um, and Yasmin Nair, whose manifesto was in fact called a manifesto, um, also ran to about twelve thousand words. Um, yeah, I, I, you know, there are eight million trillion places out there that will do the eight hundred word op-ed or you know um, the twenty five hundred word short story, and and. You know, some of them do it very well and all that. But I don't want to necessarily compete with that. There are not a lot of places that are willing to commit to these places. And when they do, they always package them as, quote, long form or something like that. It's almost like saying, you know, settle in. It's going to be a slog. I'm just just like, you know, I I, I like publishing longer pieces uh, because you can go into more depth, uh, you know, about um, uh, very complex issues. Um, I, I think if it's a narrative piece, you know, the length allows you just to have more story, you know. Um, and if it's a, a piece about a very large issue you know I, I asked you know Yasmin Nair, you know how do we save the planet you know that that was her brief you know like I think 12,000 words in anything is sort of like a bare minimum you know uh, to get there um, so yeah with the Garcia Escobar piece it was just you know it was, it was a, a one a case of a nice connection um, uh, I, I knew Jose had been my student um, and so
0: oh, I was gonna ask you that how, how he, yeah. uh, you came to know this guy who, well, whom I hate the word embedded but who Uh, joined a a caravan from Honduras up to the border, and just extraordinary.
1: he he was my student, um, and I knew he was going back to Guatemala after he graduated, and he had worked as a journalist before, um, uh, going to writing school for fiction um, uh, and went back and, and took another job as a, as a journalist and you know he mentioned, actually I don't even know if he mentioned it to me I think he was just sharing some of the stories that he had written for the paper that he was writing for in Guatemala um, and I was like wait are you traveling with a caravan and he's like yes and I'm like do I think, could I, could I get you to write something about this in English um, and he said yes and you know this came from it but when we first published him, this is actually his second piece in Evergreen we published him in in, in a section I think we really, we struggled find finding a title for it. I think we called it Other Tongues um, uh, as as opposed to to Mother Tongues because this was an issue I became interested in as a a teacher. I I teach at the New School in in their writing program and we get a lot of students um, from other countries um, uh, or else immigrants from other countries and you know what I love about this piece um, uh, is that you can tell it is written by you know a a, a Spanish speaker Um, I I think that that's important I think that it's so many of these stories you know that you read you know I read every I read the Times, I read the BBC, I read the Guardian. Um, uh, I check into you know half a dozen different you know um, blogs or other source pieces. But every story I read about um, uh, the there's migrant a distance, crisis, it's, a it, it's 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 is written by um, a, yeah. a, either a white American or you know um, uh, a, you know an American citizen who views these people as other and all that. And Jose even, was not even, writing even yeah. though
0: it might be sympathetic. Yeah, to- such, it's, Yeah, I'm uh, not reading a, any unsympathetic. There's in, a quality. Yeah. To that to that those pieces that that makes you really feel you're right there with these people making this extraordinary journey, so you really are an activist editor, and you set out to be one in the sense that um, you come up more often than not with ideas for writers, you don't shy away from. From controversy.
1: In my head, like, I think I shy away from controversy all the time, but, um, <laughs> uh, was, you know, <laughs> th- th- there there are certain things, I guess, that that you have to, that wouldn't be associated you know, con- confront, that. confront head on. But, you know, um, uh, Jose's piece... Um, uh, originally started out as, as uh, you know, a, an issue um, uh, that, that was themed about borders and, and boundaries. And this is just something that kind of came up, you know, we were having an editorial meeting and I think uh, Porachis Takakpor, who worked with us on that issue, was there, Zia was there, Calvin was there, and, you know, the, at the time, the, you know, the two big stories um, dominating the news were the migrant crisis, but then also the assault on, on reproductive health. And so we're like, how can we link these? And so we came up with this idea of kind of borders and mm-hmm. boundaries. Um, uh, putting it together and Porchista had suggested that we all look at this fantastic essay by Thoreau on, um, uh, called In Defense of John Brown which is exactly what it implies it was written after Brown was executed um, uh, Thoreau basically argues that you know um, uh, Brown was the most exemplary of Americans and had more courage you know of his convictions and, than than any founding father and all that and
0: you know did the uh, Natasha Leonard come out the, of that?
1: Natasha Leonard you know piece came, uh, came out of that. Um, we, we, Thoreau uh, argues, you know, per Brown, you know, that violence is justified in defense of democracy in certain instances and all that. You know, if somebody wants to enslave other human beings, it's okay to shoot them in the head. Um, uh, you know, if somebody is a fascist, it's okay to punch them in the face. And this was shortly after a member of Antifa um, had published had punched um, Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazi, in the face. Um, and you know, uh, a lot of people were kind of coming down, you know, on Antifa for being a violent group, including I mean, people it, on the left and so we went looking for someone um, uh, and it was Portisse to suggest you know, that Natasha Leonard would be a, a great person to write a defense um, uh, of, of punching a fascist in the face now I'm, I'm not gonna advocate for violence per se but I'm definitely not gonna you know sort of issue some blanket condemnation of, of violence especially you know for other people um, and uh, you know, as as we're watching this impeachment hearing, you know, unfold right now, I mean, it's uh, it doesn't even seem alarmist to say that that it's it's actually democracy that's on trial, and so looking for writers who can express that, you know, um, uh, you know, there's there, there, there's such a kind of like back and forth, you know, um, the outrage machine on the left, the outrage machine on the on the right, and everybody's outraged, but you know, meanwhile, you know. Um, uh one one side has power and is, is is just sort of you know undermining democratic institutions. Um and the other side still seems to think that, you know, the right wing is going to have a crisis of conscience and reject this, you know, when they're in fact, they're winning and getting everything um, that that they want. And so maybe just not hoping that, you know, the election in November, you know, 2020 is going to save everything. Maybe we shouldn't be putting all of our eggs in that basket. So yeah, we're looking for writers who can, you know, uh, are, are, are articulate, you know, uh, a, a different point
0: of view. So, so to any publishers who are out there listening, it's great to have an editor who is is not hesitant about his opinions or her opinions. I want to go back a second to. Uh, there's so many um, interesting uh, pieces in in uh, uh, the last few issues, but uh, one another one which uh, has stayed with me particularly, and which is. It's also at the same time an unusual, at least from what I've been reading, is this article by—this uh, long essay by Lonely Christopher on Kevin Killian. So can you tell us a bit about the genesis of that? I mean, how—Kevin uh, Killian was, is, is, a, is a writer, a late writer I'd never heard of. And um, how, did, how did that come about
1: I think for me this is definitely one of those pieces like I would be interested in in general but but as an as the editor of evergreen it, 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 it seems so much more of a, of a natural fit I mean evergreen was always committed to writers on the fringe um, and you know in its in its day evergreen had a tremendous power to bring writers <laughs> from the fringe into the mainstream I, I, I think you once told me that evergreen had a circulation of over a hundred thousand um,
0: what what I' read was over 200
1: over 200 thousand, you know, which is just unbelievable, 200,000 print copies, and, you know, when you consider the handover rate and everything like that, you're talking about a, that's a yeah. monthly, monthly or quarterly?
0: I think it was uh, bi Bimonthly. Bi- so every
1: yeah. two months, you know, you're probably looking at a million people reading yeah. this magazine, and which is unbelievable. Was,
0: the word was that if you were a remotely hip college student in the 60s and into the early 70s, you you read Evergreen.
1: What, so, yeah, I mean, Evergreen, you know, the, the, for, for me, you know, one of the big inspirations, you know, looking and, and taking this job when I was sort of looking at Evergreen, which I, I admit I knew very little about. I knew the name. I, I know mostly knew Barney. Um, uh, but looking at it, you know, when you look at the second issue of Evergreen, which was the Beats issue, and this is the issue that introduced Lawrence Ferlinghetti, um, and Getty, Ginsberg, William Burroughs. What, actually, was, was, was Burroughs in that issue? I think he was in that issue. If um, he wasn't in that one, uh, he was
0: in the next one. Yeah. Th- this is also it's important to say this 1957.
1: Yeah, Jack Kerouac and all that, you know, introduced the beat scene to America and, you know, made it you know, sort of one of the premier literary movements of the 20th century, um, uh, kind of due to its influence and reach. And, you know, we may not have that influence and reach, but I, I, that, that idea of, of advocating for experimental writing um, that has not yet reached a large audience, I think is, is one that's very near and dear to me. So Kevin was an important writer to me when I first started out 30 years mm-hmm. um, uh, and never kind of crossed out of um, uh, the avant-garde or uh, literary fringes, as it were. Very well respected by people who read him, but didn't have a huge audience. And unfortunately, I believe he died of brain cancer um, uh, over the summer, Uh, went fairly quickly. And I knew Lonely Christopher. Um, I knew his writing. I uh, actually blurred, I think, his first book of short stories, The Mechanics of Homosexual Intercourse, which is a fantastic title. Um, uh, And I knew that he was very influenced by uh, Kevin and knew Kevin. Kevin and Dodie, um, Kevin's widow, um, uh, fairly well. And so I asked him if he would like to write a piece. And specifically, you know, there's this thing that happens now on on, on social media, and I think on, on just online journalism in general, which is, you know, because the turnaround is so quick, sometimes the comments can be a little glib or a little personal um uh, so there were all of these pieces talking about what a great guy kevin killian was and like how helpful and generous he was and all that and i think that's fantastic but i mean kevin wrote 20 books or something like that he produced hundreds of thousands of words um and, and I, I wanted to you know commemorate his literary legacy as well so i i asked only if he would be willing to write about that, um, uh, and once again, you know, as with Jose, he sort of went to town, and you know, I, I got this fifteen thousand word piece, and you know, I thought I was going to read it and look for the twenty five hundred th- words that sort of summed it all up, and it was just, it was immensely readable. Um, uh, I think, unlike, say, you know, a piece like Yasmin Nair's manifesto, which, which really is a kind of like start to finish, you know, kind of gathering wave, and you read the whole thing all at once, it was something that you could serialize, and so I thought all right you know let's let's break this up into parts and so there's the novels there's the poetry there's the work in the theater and then there's my you know my secret favorite section which is um uh kevin killian if you don't know was an inveterate amazon reviewer apparently wrote something like fifty thousand words worth of uh um, amazon re- reviews uh, a- a- and all that and lonely gives an in-depth analysis you know of, of the genesis and scope of this particular project you know i i, I think having that record out there you know maybe we don't have the 200,000 subscribers that evergreen did have in its heyday but it's there now and it's 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 the internet and you know like someone can say who's you know kevin killian and instead of going to this wikipedia page that says you know kevin killian was a writer and here's a bibliography of of him you know maybe the second or third hit will be this evergreen review article you know that that will say kevin killian was an amazing writer and you know if you've never heard of him you should have and if you've never read him you should read him
0: Listening to you, Dale, as a, an editor uh, myself, um, it's it's really inspiring the enthusiasm you bring to your descriptions of, of each of these pieces. Would you ever take on something that, um, uh, say it's by a writer who, whom you do respect and whose work you admire, but uh, the piece you think is sort of... Um, you know, maybe not so exciting, but you want to have that name in the issue? I hope
1: not I guess is how I would have to answer that question I'd have to qualify in a lot of different ways um, we, we had this conversation once once before and I've had it with other people as well you know there's a lot of push to discover new writers first time writers and, and all that and while I think it's important to publish new voices in the sense of literally people who have never been heard from before I do think that the publishing industry both on the book side and the magazine side is way too skewed towards that um, and it is very hard, it's very hard, especially I think in you know um, uh, an Amazon universe, which has completely destroyed literary backlists um, for people. It's it's very hard for um, a writer who's been around for for twenty or thirty years to continue to make a living because there you know if you are not a bestseller, then then you're not making any but royalties. But your goal
0: isn't to run a charity for old writers. It's not to run a charity
1: per se, but it is you know there there are amazing writers you know um, in their fifties and sixties and seventies um, who don't reach a large audience anymore and publishers don't want to touch them you know their their opportunity for building an audience is deemed past because you know the review industry is incredibly freighted toward first-time voices and 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 all that the you know book publishing industry is freighted toward first-time authors and all of that and so I I I do want to publish you know for example I mean Robert Coover is is a legend, um, a living legend. Is he in his nineties, he's in his late eighties. Yeah. Um, I, you know, um, you know, one one of the most important sort of literary figures of the 1960s uh, and, and all that. And he's he's not selling a lot of books anymore. And so, you know, as it happened, a particular story that we got from him, I really love. It's one of the most disgusting things I've ever read about, you know, <laughs> um, gerontological sex uh, and 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 voyeurism and, and, and all that. But I might have been inclined to publish it even if I wasn't in love with it, because you know he's not dead and his brain still works and he's got something to say. And, you know, I mean, it's a very powerful piece about aging. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I want to, you know, to publish that. You know, other writers that we published in the magazine as well, I think, you know, in their 60s and 70s, um, respected, but, but, but not really finding the audience. And I, I, I want Evergreen to be an audience um, for people uh, like that. I, so far I've been lucky in, in the, the pieces that we've received from those people have all been really great I, I, I think so um, I've been happy to publish it um, uh, if, if it comes to the case if someone your, your favorite 70-year-old writer who's not very famous anymore or, or something. If Catherine Davis, who is one of my favorite writers in uh, you know, all of the world, if she sent me a not very good piece, which I can't really imagine, um, it would be hard for me not to publish it, even if I didn't think it was great, because I love Catherine Davis so much, and I don't understand. I mean, God bless Grey Wolf for publishing her um, and all that, but I don't understand why you know she's not being published by a Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux or a Knopf you know, that can afford to give her a few more dollars probably than what she's getting from, from, from Grey Wolf. But I am trying to avoid that, you know, nepotistic sort of thing that, that, that happens um, either when you're publishing your friends or you're publishing people who can help your career or, or, or something like that. Um, I, you know, I, I don't want to fall into that model, you know, looking from the outside. You know, it's hard not to look at. A magazine like McSweeney's and see it as a little bit as a club you know as a little bit as friends publishing friends uh and and all that I don't want Evergreen to turn into something like that um or even to have the appearance uh of of something like that so um uh, I I hope that the quality of of the piece always comes first and I think especially you know if you're publishing you know somewhere between 40 and 60 pieces a, a, a year they should all be pretty good um you know, there might be some instance in which you have a journalist, you know, um, on hand for just uh, something incredibly important, and the piece is maybe not the greatest thing in the world, but the reporting is that important that, that you publish it. But other than that, you know, you want the shit to be good shit.
0: <laughs> so, so one of the things that I think uh, is most exciting about Evergreen under your uh, editorial direction is the breadth and the variety of pieces, and that applies not only to written work but you've chosen some Remarkable uh, short videos and right
1: now that you know the new piece that's up on Evergreen is you know two videos by Brontes Purnell and I think we argue about which one of us found Brontes first because you recommended him to me and I recommended him to you um, uh, as well and you've been very interested in this you've done Young Hei Chang Heavy Industries as, as well um, but if, if you're doing an online only publication um, you know it, it, it behooves you to explore some of the possibilities uh, uh, of the form and I think that's one of the great things about having brought in. Joy Garnett is our art editor um, because she's also interested in that. So between uh, you and Joy, we can continue to do more um, non-language-based pieces um, uh, for the for the magazine because you know that that's what the internet is you know is is good for and exciting
0: um. e- e- exciting to explore. And in terms of poetry, what you?
1: you know, we now finally have our our, our poetry editor. Um, uh, I am just so I'm gonna cop to it. You know, I'm just not great with contemporary poetry. Um, um, it's funny, you know, you asked me before about, like, like wanting to be, uh, and, you know, why I took this job. And, you know, one of my real inspirations, you know, for this was, was T.S. Eliot, you know, in founding The Little Magazine and, and all of that. Because I thought, you know, this is what you do if, if you're a serious artist and you're devoting your life to art. You don't just make your own work, but, you know, you build communities uh, uh, of art. But, unfortunately, my knowledge of, 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 of poetry, you know, kind of tops out around Elizabeth Bishop, Wallace Stevens. And after that, you know, I read Sharon Olds in the 90s. So. Um, uh but I think every gay person read Sharon Olds in the nineteen nineties. Um uh, and so we are now very um uh, happy to have G. Leon Co um, as our editor. And you know, you mentioned before about the breadth of Evergreen's pieces, and I think you have got to attribute that to the editorial um uh people, people you know who have come. You know, Calvin Baker and Zia Jaffrey in the beginning, then Poor Chiste Kekpor, um now um Joy Garnett and G. Leon Co, and mm-hmm. also Miracle Jones. I mean yeah. all, all of these people you know, make the magazine um, what what it is. It's, yes. it's definitely not just no, my I, sensibility, absolutely. and you wouldn't want it to be just but, my sensibility. But the fact either. that you
0: that you uh, oversee this and the sort of United States of editing uh, is, I think, uh, uh, that's definitely um, a mark of yours. You shape it, but it's definitely that you allow that to happen. I think is, is striking. I thought, you know, on that last point, you, you get this unexpected mix which really somehow fits together in such a uh, a good way i mean like that that chinese piece that uh, this character miracle jones brought in um i thought that was wonderful this uh, that uh, comic strip that had been uh, banned in china yeah the essay from its publisher uh, its american publisher the
1: translator our um, Ryan Martin yeah no that is definitely not something that I ever would have um, you Congress. know come across by myself and you know that's what's great about it, an editorial team and you know so far most of the stuff that they have thrown my way has all been really interesting which is nice I actually um, uh, one editor I won't say who it was you know just sent me a piece and it's like you know it's a little I, I just said it was a little same old same old and he's like Okay, you're right. But do not infrequently I, reject I, I have, stuff that I suggest. Well, you send me you send me a lot of stuff. You know, I might I might have received a, you know an, an, an email just today. I appreciate you know, the from, diplomacy, but that, that is by far the worst part of this job. You know, I mean, even if the piece of writing you know, like we haven't had a piece of writing that's offensive yet, but like there are some pieces of writing that are just not particularly good. And you know, with Evergreen, one of the things that I think that we've tried to avoid is is the sort of editorial committee vote on something. You know, for me, by and large you know if, if an editor sends me a piece and they are really gung-ho about it that's all that's all I need to know it's like if I don't like the piece and I push back a little bit and the editor seems to be very wishy-washy about it then that's one thing but if the, if the editor sends me a piece and they're like I really love this and even if it, it's not something that appeals to me I'm, I'm I'm more than happy to publish it because you know it's, it's actually you know the, the former head of my writing program Robert Polito um, you know uh, once said to me you know when he was sort of discussing admissions he's like I would much rather except a student that that one recommender really loves than, like five recommenders gave a B minus two and all that you know you you want individual voices or voices that are appealing to, to individual sensibilities like, you know we, we've never sort of like like put a piece up you know for vote you know for for the whole crew or something I like, you know, like know. that it's 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 just kind of like someone talks about something they're really excited by it and like yeah let's do it you know um, which, well, so I, far, is working for us.
0: I, I just can't wait to see what else you're coming up. With. In fact, I know a few things that are in the works, but um, uh, you know, really look forward to seeing how Evergreen evolves over the next few years, and and uh, uh, really will be exciting. If they're still in America, that will let us publish, <laughs> you know,
1: and all that. and th- right. th- That does seem to be the next <clears throat> the next big challenge, you know. <laughs> what
0: else do you plan for this podcast, Dale?
1: I will be interviewing Ji um, who is our poetry editor and also a very accomplished poet whose uh, new book, Connor and Seal I think is out very soon we actually published an excerpt from it in the magazine last year G is a great poet um, a great poetry editor, as it turns out but he's also the founder of an organization called Singapore Unbound um, which promotes not just Singaporean, but, but, but Asian writers um, uh, in English and uh, also has a special focus on Asian LB- LGBTQ issues Um, uh, as well. So I think there's going to be lots of interesting stuff there. I'm also going to uh, talk to... one of our co-founding editors, Calvin Baker, whose new book—I believe it is about black gentrification and black suburbia. It, it is a history of kind of like the second half of the 20th century and early 21st century in, in, in black American life uh, and all that, which is out in a few months. I'm also just putting it out there. We'll be we'll be cajoling him very hard to get an excerpt uh, of, of the book for the magazine. Um, uh, I'm going to try to interview you know some evergreen writers, but then try to talk Great. about um, uh, other people not necessarily in the magazine because hopefully we can talk about things that that are interesting in and of themselves and not simply why? you know get people to go click on www.evergreenreview.com. <laughs> <laughs> right. oh no.
0: Well I think you know for for example now what was interesting to me wasn't only that we talked about uh, evergreen but just you know theories of editing in,
1: in Barney's memoir when he talks about founding the magazine um you know he was asked sort of point blank why did you found um, uh, this 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 magazine, and he he gave this kind of really vague answer, basically saying there just kind of seemed to be a need for it, and and he he said I felt like if you overthought it, then it was going to become something that was sort of you know narrow or overdetermined or or, or something like that, and that that really resonated with me. Yeah. Um, so like I you know for me it's like a I, I, it's a little funny when you like talk about a theory of editing because on some level I'm really very deliberately trying to wing it um, and and all that I I don't want to be programmatic you know uh, other than you know. Anyone who knows anything in a, at all about me knows that that I, I like well done avant-garde writing, and and I have you know lefty political positions. So obviously I'm gonna gravitate towards towards those two things. But other than that, you know, um, I, I mean I spend like you know an hour you know a, a day kind of just like going through my social media feeds looking for you know people who. are doing interesting things, and just like saying, hey, you know, like, is there some way to like turn this into an evergreen piece? And, you know, so far we've had, you know, pretty good luck. I mean, this is how we ended up with Laurie Stone in the magazine, which I I think is really exciting. Several of our art pieces to um, Tadashi Mitsui, you know, um, who's primarily an actor. He doesn't think of himself as a visual artist, but but he does, you know, these interesting cartoonish drawings, and, and, you know, we were able to use them for one of the pieces. Like, I, I want that kind of, catch-is-catch-can um, uh, aesthetic or vibe more than I want, you know, someone to say, like, an Evergreen piece is going to be X, Y, and Z. Because I think once once you fall into that kind of programmatic model, you know, then it becomes more about branding than about, you know, the the, the individual voices and points of view that I think we're more interested in.
0: So after Evergreen, Barney founded a bar and he founded a movie theater. So, you know, I mean, there's the, the world awaits... Dale, you know, we can... we can. Uh...
1: I think we should do our own brand of whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks a lot. You've been listening to the inaugural edition of A Critique of Pure Resin, the podcast of the Evergreen Review. Uh, I want to thank our guest, John Oaks, a.k.a. my boss, a.k.a. Evergreen's publisher. Tune in next time when we have another guest on it. <laughs> you can skip the tune in next time. <laughs>